The future is a hefty responsibility and not one that we take lightly. But then taking things lightly has never been what hefty is about. That's why we've created the Hefty Renew program that turns hard to recycle plastics into valuable resources like park benches and building materials. To participate, simply fill up an orange Hefty Renew bag with accepted items, tie it up, and drop it in with your regular recycling. That's it. It's that easy. It's time to rethink recycling with Renew. Particular valued resources may vary by geography. More info available at heftyrenew.com. Support for this podcast and the following message come from Corient. Corient provides wealth management services centered around you. They focus on exceeding your expectations and simplifying your life. Corient has been helping high achievers just like you enjoy their lives more fully, preserve their wealth, and provide for the people, causes, and communities they care about. As one of the largest integrated fee-only registered investment advisors in the U.S., Corient has deeply experienced teams in 23 strategic locations. Corient has extensive knowledge spanning the full spectrum of planning, investing, lending, and money management disciplines. Leverage Corient's exclusive network of experts to craft custom solutions designed to help you reach your financial goals, no matter how complex they may be. Real wealth requires real solutions. For more information, connect with a wealth advisor today at Corient.com. That's C-O-R-I-E-N-T.com. Corient.com. This is Wheel Bearings. I'm Dan Roth. And I'm Sam of Salmon. Happy Thanksgiving, everybody. And happy Thanksgiving to you as well, Sam. And we apologize <laughs> for not getting you a show last week. I was on the road. Schedules were a little hectic. Uh, so it was, it, was a, it was a bit tough to uh, for Dan and I to get together. But we're back. We're yeah, still I, here. You should not apologize for doing your job. <laughs> That's true. The, the, the job enables me to do, to provide this service to you all for free. Correct. Uh, the Wheelbearings podcast has been underwritten by <laughs> Navigant and, and Research. Sam. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Navigant Research and and what what's your company? Uh, D fifty Media. Okay. Um, there you for go. all of your advertising needs. Yeah. <laughs> those 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 companies pay us enough of a salary that we can afford to do nonsense like this for free. Yeah, and uh, I, hopefully it's been uh, you know again we we eclipsed a year and we seem to still have some listeners. So let's see yeah. if we can screw hey, that up. It seems to be in a, a, a steadily increasing number. Good, good. Well, uh, let's get into it then. All right. Um, because there's there's pies to make and turkey to get in the oven and stuff because it is Thanksgiving. So uh, I hope everybody is listening to this either on their way to or their way back or you know during a food coma or you know whatever. But anyway. Sam, um, it, let's preface this with uh, the cars we're driving are a very uh, hybrid heavy um, lineup this week or, or sort of alternative propulsion. Uh, and, and you were driving. Yeah, actually, it, it looks like all four of them are hybrids yeah. this week. Yeah, you were driving sort of the Toyota selection of <laughs> um, yeah. of hybrids. Uh, and you, you had the Mirai and the Highlander hybrid. But the Mirai is really, really interesting. So why don't we start with that? Okay, so yeah, I was out in California last week, and you know, being based in the Detroit area, um, you know, we we do get access to most of the cars that the manufacturers offer, but there are a few exceptions, uh, such as the Mirai, uh, which is Toyota's first production fuel cell vehicle. <clears throat> Excuse me, and um, the the reason why they don't send Mirais to Michigan uh, for the press fleet is because there's somewhat of a dearth of uh, publicly accessible 
hydrogen fueling stations here, uh, as in there are none. Um, but there are a couple of dozen in California now. And uh, so uh, since I was heading out to California last week for some meetings, I reached out to Toyota and said, hey, you guys happen to have a Mirai available in the Bay Area? And they were fortunate. They, fortunately, they had one uh, in the fleet and they loaned it to me for a couple of days. So I, I spent a couple of days driving around the Bay Area in, uh, in a Toyota Mirai, uh, which, you know, if you're not familiar with the, with the Mirai, it's a, a four-door sedan. Um, and, uh, it's, uh, it's a little bit bigger than a Prius. Um, uh, and <clears throat> like other fuel cell vehicles, it's got a, um, a hydrogen fuel cell stack, which is a, a device that takes hydrogen, uh, mixes it with oxygen and, uh, an electrochemical reaction happens that, um, as it combines the hydrogen and oxygen together, it produces water and electricity. And that electricity is used to feed uh, the traction motor. So it is an electric vehicle, uh, but without a plug. Uh, so uh, it's a, technically a zero emissions vehicle, the only emission being water vapor. Uh, and the interesting little item about that, when when I arrived at, uh, at SFO, um, one of the uh, folks, the, the guy delivering the car, uh, met me there uh, to just give me a quick walk around to the car before I took off. And... On the uh, left-hand side of the dashboard, uh, next to the uh, trunk release, there's a button that's labeled H2O. And I guess uh, one of the things that the Mirai does is uh, the, the water that's generated by the uh, by the, the stack and and that's uh, that's produced uh, that's condensed uh, from from the stack as it's producing electricity uh, is collected in a little storage tank in the back of the car. And uh, normally at the end of your drive. You know, when you park the car, it will uh, open up that storage tank and just dump the water on the ground. No problem. But, you know, if you happen to be the owner of a Mirai and you park it in a garage and you don't want to have a puddle in your in your garage every time you park the car, they give you the option of this this extra um, uh, H2O button uh, that you can press and it will uh, it will release it'll open up the drain and release the water so you can pull into your driveway or even in the street release the water and then pull into your garage so you don't get a puddle in your garage so interesting little well i mean that's that that's very comprehensive thinking oh yeah absolutely i mean you know toyota right now you know i would certainly along with um honda and and daimler you know in terms of automotive um uh fuel cell technology i mean they they are they're definitely the global leaders right now. Uh, oh, and and Hyundai too. I mean, Hyundai has been doing a lot of work with fuel cells. Um, so it's, it's interesting, interesting concept. Yeah, and this is you know one of the you know one of the first you know truly you know designed from the ground up hydrogen fuel cell vehicles. So you've got there's two hydrogen storage tanks in the back under the the trunk and and the rear seat, and then the fuel cell stacks that's under the front seats, uh, and then you, in the front you have the uh, the drive motor and the power electronics. Um, so it's a front drive car. And for the most part, um, you know, I mean, you, you get into the Mirai and if you've ever driven a, you know, a Prius in the last 10 years, you'll probably feel right at home in the Mirai, you know, very, uh, very similar kind of look and feel. You've got the, the strip, you know, across the center of the dashboard, the top center of the dashboard with the, uh, most of the gauges, um, same uh, little shifter that you find in in the Prius, you know, where you a uh, little stubby shifter that sticks up out of the middle of the center stack. 
push it over to the left and down to get drive and left and up to get reverse. Um, so it's, it's, it'll be very familiar to anybody that's driven a Prius, uh, recently. And, you know, it pretty much drives like a, like a previous generation Prius, you know, not exciting. Um, but you know, it, it actually probably, I'd say it drives better dynamically. It's better than a Prius. Um, but, and it's certainly quicker. It's got uh, quite a bit more power from the electric motor than, uh, any Prius, including the Prius prime has. Uh, so, you know, it's, it's pretty easy to spin the front wheels, uh, with the Mirai. Um, the trunk is, it's big enough, you know, for like probably three, three carry on bags. Um, it's not huge, um, cause the, the hydrogen storage tank does back there does intrude a little bit into it, but it's, you know, it's perfectly usable, you know, and it's usable as a all around daily driver. Um, you know, and aside from the fact that, you have to go to different fueling stations to to fill it up. You know, it's it's a pretty normal experience. I mean, there's nothing 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 terribly um, you know science fiction or earth shattering about it. And even even fueling it up is pretty straightforward. There's a a, a hydrogen filling station uh, a couple of minutes from the hotel I was staying at in Santa Clara. Um, and I, you know, even though I you know the, the tank was still pretty much full, uh, I went ahead and, and went over there just to try out the experience. Um, and it's pretty similar to filling up, you know, any regular gas or diesel car, except, uh, when you take the hose off, uh, and you stick it on, there's a, a fitting, you know, you open up the, the fuel filler door and there's a fitting <clears throat> there. You put the, the hose on and then you just pull a lever and it clamps on there because, um, you know, it's filling the, the hydrogen, you know, compressed hydrogen at 10,000 PSI. Um, so, you know, they, they want to clamp it pretty tight to make sure it doesn't come off and, and leak. But, um, other than that, you know, and, and the nozzle itself, uh, is kind of cold. You know, when you, when you grab the nozzle to put it on, it, it feels kind of cold because well, of the, the yeah, I mean, gas in there, but right. I was going to say it's that that's thermodynamics. That's, that's yeah, air conditioning. Exactly. <laughs> you know, as, as the pressure drops, it's going to absorb heat. Um, how long did it take to fill up? Uh, well, like I said, it, uh, you know, it was probably about seven eighths full already. So it didn't, you know, it, it, I only had it uh, going for a minute or so just to see what the experience was like. Uh, you know, and, you know, with, as with, you know, uh, if you've ever driven a, a CNG car, compressed natural gas car, uh, it's fairly typical as it starts to get near full, it slows down the fill rate, uh, you know, so you don't overpressurize the tank or anything. Um, but generally, you know, it takes about, uh, you know, five to seven minutes, you know, if it's empty, you know, or near empty, you know, to fill the tank. So it's about the same as filling a gasoline car. Um, the biggest difference is just the, the price of the hydrogen, uh, which right now is about, uh, about $16 a kilogram in California. Uh, you know, and that's, that's equivalent to, uh, uh about a, ga a gal it's a, a kilogram of hydrogen is equivalent energy equivalent to about a gallon of gasoline, but it's about three times as efficient. So, you know, it's, it's roughly, you know, equivalent to driving a car, uh, you know, that equivalent cost per mile is probably about five or $6 a gallon. I mean, that's in, in, in California, that's probably yeah, a little I mean, easier you know, to swallow. We're, you know, we're, we're gas is four bucks a gallon anyway, you know, yeah. because of, taxes and everything else there it you know it's it's not that much more but it is, it is more expensive um you know and of course you know the the Mirai itself is fairly pricey it's fifty seven thousand dollars um 
but you know, you can buy one, you know, without having to lease it. You can actually own it outright if you want. Um, or you can lease it from Toyota. Uh, you know, and it's, it's generally, you know, I, I had no real complaints about it. I mean, it's, you know, it's a fairly, uh, uh, you know, it's not the most, it's not the prettiest car in the world. Let's say that <laughs> there's that there's that aspect to it. Yeah. Yes. Um, and it is only a four seater, uh, because, um, the, the way the things are configured in the back, there's a center console on the back. Uh, so there's only room for two in the back seat. Uh, but it's, you know, it's roomy enough. There's plenty of headroom, plenty of leg room in the back seat. Um, but other than that, you know, it's, it, you know, the experience is pretty, you know, pretty normal. I mean, nothing, nothing too outrageous about it. So I think that that's actually the most outrageous thing or the, the, the biggest point is this is, it's still pretty exotic technology, um, more so than hybrids. Yeah. Um, well, you know, I mean, this is technology that was invented in the 1960s for the space program. Right. You know, it, it was created, <laughs> you know, to, to power the uh, Apollo moon missions, you know, to provide electricity to the, for the, uh, the spacecraft that went to the moon and, you know, GM was the first one to create a fuel cell vehicle with the, uh, the electro van in the 1960s. They took, they took the fuel cell system that was designed for the Apollo mission and installed it in a Corvair van. And that was the first prototype fuel cell vehicle ever. Yeah. Uh, and, you know, they've been, they've been working on fuel cell technology ever since. Uh, and, you know, making it lighter and, and more efficient and, and reducing the cost. Um, and, and actually, in fact, uh, as I, you know, as I said at the beginning, you know, all four of the cars we're driving this week were, are hybrids. And in fact, you know, all the fuel cell vehicles that are out there, um, are also hybrids because since they're electric, uh, you know, what they do is, you know, they'll typically put, you know, a, a small, you know, like a one, one to one and a half kilowatt hour battery in there, same as you use in other hybrids. Uh, to do regenerative braking and, and recapture some energy uh, during braking, and that helps increase the overall efficiency. And it also helps to, uh, you know, fuel cells. You know, in terms of their power generation, they're, they're most efficient when they're producing steady-state electric power. Right. You know, so it's, having the battery in there, you know, helps you shave off some of those peaks and, and gives you better efficiency. Yeah, I mean, it, it's uh, the best way I think of it is a fuel cell vehicle is sort of like your your you've got a plug-in hybrid. Or, or it just an it's an electric car that you have a a power generation source, right? So that's what a yeah. hybrid is. Um, yeah, you're you generating know, the electricity on board instead of getting it from the grid. Right. It's like you have a really long extension cord. Yeah. <laughs> um, and and a battery is essentially a capacitor, and capacitors are used to, to like you said, to sort of condition to to smooth out those peaks and valleys. Um, it, that's oversimplifying, but if it helps you understand it, uh, that that's how I think of it because it helps me relate to the world in my own strange way. Um, but yeah, I, I think the, the biggest thing for me that sticks out is like how normal the experience is and how refined it is um, to the point where you're not driving something that, that feels very experimental at all. And um, infrastructure is, is lagging both uh, electric and for, you know, something like the, the fuel cell or even, Although you know, much, CNG. Much, much more so for the fuel cell. I mean, at least yeah. with, you know, with a plug-in vehicle and, you know, I, I don't want to call, uh, and particularly when we're talking about this, I don't want to <laughs> refer to it as electric because a fuel cell vehicle is electric. It's just it's generating its own electricity in real time, as opposed to uh, getting stored electricity, you know, storing electricity that was generated at a power plant somewhere or from your solar cells on your roof or somewhere else. 
Um, so they, the, you know, the, the fuel cell system, you know, is typically lighter um, because it can be refueled so much more quickly. You know, one of the, the applications that we're likely to see for fuel cell vehicles going forward are more likely to be for larger vehicles and particularly for trucks like, you know, Nikola uh, is a, a startup that's developing a fuel cell powered truck. Toyota is actually testing a couple of fuel cell powered semis at the port of Long Beach, um, you know, using their the technology from the Mirai installed in a class A tractor, um, you know, to do zero emission vehicles. You know, because they can you can refuel those in a few minutes as opposed to right. you know much longer periods of time to recharge them and and we'll get to recharging trucks uh, a little <laughs> later on in the right. show. But that, it's it's very appropriate. I, I mean, it it seems like from what from what that sounds like, it scales a lot better than mm -hmm. something you know, like a hybrid uh, powertrain. Yeah, absolutely. And, or, I, I should say it's sort of like a, a, a gas power, a battery powertrain. Right. Right. Or battery. Yeah. Um, at, least, you know, at least with a battery, you know, even though, you know, there's limitations on public charging infrastructure, worst case, you can always plug it into your 110 volt outlet at home and charge it. It's just going to take longer, but you can still do it. You don't have that option with hydrogen. Uh, you're, you're basically stuck with whatever infrastructure you can find. I mean, you can make some sort of like homebrew electrolysis set up to generate some hydrogen. I yeah, and you know Honda, you know <laughs> Honda has been showing some stuff, um, you know over, uh, over the years, and you know they've they've had some prototypes uh, that they've shown of uh, a cogeneration system, um, you know, for the home that uh, uses uses natural gas, reforms natural gas um, to generate hydrogen for your car, so you can fuel your car mm -hmm. at home, and then also generates heat. Uh, to to heat and and power your house and and also right. to provide electricity for your house. See, and that's actually very clever because that's the, the best way to get hydrogen. The most efficient way is to to do it from from petroleum or natural gas. Uh, you know, that's, you, that's actually the way most hydrogen today is produced right. is as a byproduct of um, uh, petroleum refining. Yeah, I mean, you can you can crack water if you want, but yeah. <laughs> well, you know, and and actually, you know, as as solar becomes more cost efficient. Um, you know, then electrolysis um, actually becomes a, a more efficient process as well, or, or a more a more affordable process. So, you yeah. know, if you can use solar or wind to do electrolysis of water, then you know, then it, it becomes more straightforward. Yeah. So, so it sounds like there's a, a much brighter future for this, uh, where um, you know, this is almost like two divergent paths. It seems like we're running very fast toward electrification of you know battery electric. I, I, I got to train myself We're toward toward battery electric versus, uh, you know, the fuel cell where to me, the benefits are of the fuel cell seem like you're using smaller batteries. Overall, it's lighter. Um, and, and right there you have efficiency gains. Uh, it's more like the current experience of uh, refueling um, and to actually retrofit our refueling infrastructures, maybe simpler with hydrogen because you're sort of dealing with the flammable gas and or liquid anyway not, not, and maybe it's know, the, the 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 equipment we use for liquid fueling um is not compatible with gaseous fueling yes you know, so oh yeah but you do need new stuff i mean you can put it in the same locations right and that's what i'm thinking is like with the electric recharge or you know like a battery charging infrastructure you need you know, like transformers and 480 volts and you know more or maybe, more <laughs> right uh and so you basically need you need a transformer yard for your station, which uh, uh, even even that's getting to the point, though. I mean, that, you know, I mean, the, the work that uh, Tesla has done with superchargers, you know, the supercharger stations are relatively compact. 
but you know the the next generation of this stuff you know is because the power levels are going up they're definitely um uh you know you're going to be looking at more space requirements uh to do this stuff you know and, and again we'll we'll talk more about that later but you know overall you know i think you know where we'll see more use of fuel cells you know and you know like for example where gm has talked about using fuel cells uh starting with their first production program in 2020 they're they've been working with honda to commercialize their fuel cell technology and um their their first program in around 2020 you know, is going to be in some larger vehicle you know so it'll probably be in something like a next generation suburban you know they'll probably offer an electric version of that um with uh, uh with with uh, a fuel cell um and that'll probably be you know one of those 20 electric vehicles that they're talking about doing uh in the next 6 or 7 years so we'll keep sort of seeing this it nibble around the edges of what's already established um and and maybe it'll feel like it comes out of nowhere when when hydrogen gets or when fuel cells get a little bit more uh mainstream um yeah but, well fuel cell fuel cells are one of those technologies that's been five years away for the last twenty five years right like like so many <laughs> others uh, you know and in fact actually the very first review I ever wrote for Autoblog Green was actually of a fuel cell car it was it was a ford focus fuel cell uh that Ford lent, loaned me for a couple of days uh back in the fall of uh two thousand six and that was the first review I ever wrote. Um, and, you know, it's funny, you know, coming back around, there's still, you know, not many more fuel cell cars today than there were, you know, in 2006. So how does this in 2017 stack up against 2006? I know they're two different oh, cars, two different companies. Yeah, I mean, this, you know, this is that was, you know, much more of a, a prototype system. Um, you know, this is much closer to a mass producible system in terms of cost, um, you know, that you know it's it's packaged much better than than the uh the focus was it's got a lot more room inside more cargo space I mean, the focus basically used up its entire trunk you know for the hydrogen storage um and you know this one's got about twice as more than twice as much range as that focus did uh you know you can go over 300 miles with a Mirai. um so yeah it's it's a it's a very different situation they've come a long way but they've still got a long way to go yeah, well, you know, California's our guinea pig. That's fine. We'll <laughs> see what California they can work in the out. Northeast. Yeah, I mean, to, to us hippies up here, us, us communists in the Northeast, uh, we get all those blow over emissions. So <laughs> fine. Um, yeah. And I, I actually really like uh, EVs without the engine. So if there's some other way of powering it, I think it's a, it's actually a really it's a really nice sort of serene driving experience. Um and, you know, now that I'm becoming an old man, I like serenity. <laughs> uh, <laughs> but you also drove the uh, the Highlander hybrid. Yeah. Um, so before before I left for California, I was in the, uh, uh, the Highlander hybrid, uh, which, you know, if you've ever driven a Highlander, you know, big, big, uh, relatively large, you know, mid mid to large size crossover family, you know, family vehicle uh, with Toyota's hybrid system in there, um, you know with uh, an electric motor on the rear axle and then their, their standard hybrid setup on the front. Um, pretty uneventful, you know, I mean, it's, it's basic drives pretty much like any other Highlander, uh, except gets better fuel economy. Got, got about, uh, 24, about 24 miles per gallon over the week. I drove it and, um, you know, relatively pleasant, nothing too exciting. You know, it's not quite as, um, dynamic as some of the other, uh, current crop of, Larger crossovers, uh, the Honda Pilot, 
uh, or some, you know, some of its other competitors, but it does fine. You know, it's nothing, you know, nothing to get worked up about, but you know, it's, it's the typical, you know, it's the classic Toyota, you know, it's a decent value. Um, it's almost certainly going to be incredibly reliable. It's going to get you where you need to go, uh, offer you plenty of room and features. Um, and just, you know, do it without, uh, you know, while staying out of the way, you know, it's, it's not going to do it. It's, it's not going to, it's not going to get you, uh, worked up, uh, in a good way or a bad way. So do you think that that sort of ennui that you're expressing is their goal? Cause I, I mean, it, it's, it seems like an insult, but then the fact that it's got so much sort of packed into it and it just, it just works. You just get in, you press yeah, the button and you, you know, go it, like, it's, it, it's, it's, it's the, impressive. It's, it's the reality of, of the marketplace. You know, the, the reality is that most people out there really don't care much about what they drive. They just want to get, you know, decent value for their money. They want to know that the money that they're paying every month, you know, to, um, you know, to Toyota credit or, you know, whoever the financing arm is, uh, is going to get them a vehicle that meets their needs. That's going to get them and their families to work and to school and wherever else they need to go, whenever they need to go, you know, they're going to get in there. They're going to press the start button and it's going to, it's going to start and it's going to run. And it's, you know, it's, it's never going to, um, you know, or almost never, you know, going to be problematic. You know, they're, they're not going to be worried about, um, you know, seals that, uh, that don't seal out the rain or seats that, uh, flop around. You know, I mean, the, the fit and finish is, is going to be good. You know, the car is not going to fall apart. They, they just want to know that they're going to have reliable transportation whenever they need it. And Toyota, I mean, the reason why Toyota is as big as they are is because they deliver on that promise. You know, I mean, they have some more exciting products too. Uh, but you know, vehicles like the Highlander and most Camrys, you know, are not like, are they don't fall into that category. And that's, that's not, you know, custom, most customers don't care about that. You know, that's not where they're looking for their excitement. They, they want reliable, affordable transportation. And, you know, the, you know, if you, if you're, if that need, you know, includes more cargo space, you know, more room for people than a Camry can offer, the Highlander does a fantastic job of doing it. And, you know, the current generation Highlander, I think, is actually, you know, actually quite a good looking vehicle. You know, I think it's definitely the best looking Highlander uh, yeah. ever. Yeah. Because they made it look like a Grand Cherokee. Yeah. Well, <laughs> largely. But I mean, even even the the the, the way they did the, the grill, you know, I mean, Toyota has been moving you know, in recent years to this larger trapezoidal grill. You know, and I think on the previous generation Camry, it kind of looked out of place. Um, but you know, on the Highlander, I think, I think it actually works, you know, it works with the, you know, it, it doesn't look overblown on that vehicle. And, you know, I think it's, it's a sharp looking vehicle and say, you know, it, it does, it does what it needs to do. And that's something that, you know, companies like Tesla are going to have to learn if you're going to compete in the mainstream marketplace, you know, you can be as sexy as you want, but if you can't meet the basic functionality needs of a customer and, you know, do it reliably that, you know, they're going to walk away and go somewhere else. I have so much to say about some of those basic functionality needs this week. <laughs> <laughs> it's just, but that, that's a, it's a very good point. And um, it's funny, somebody uh, I work with struck up a conversation with me about, um, you know, have you heard of, of uh, Lucid? And I was like, yeah, um, you know, it, it's interesting and it's impressive to a degree, but all of that super fancy stuff, I, I mean, 
there's nobody who's successfully pushed down market with EVs and, and with technology as well as Toyota has. Like when Toyota sets its mind to it, they bring it to the masses. Um, they they do very hard things and they make it look easy. And so we can say that well, the cars are the not exciting, yeah, but make, making hard stuff look easy is actually really hard. You know, yeah. when, you know, taking taking hard stuff and struggling with it, you know, that's a sign that you're you're not succeeding. You know, that it, it takes a lot more effort to do it right than it just than it does to just be out there first and you know, and and make it look sexy. You know, for you know, for Toyota to achieve what they have, you know, to make it really seamless, to make the ownership experience really seamless. You know, you you get into a Highlander hybrid or a Camry hybrid or you know, any number of other you know, I mean the 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 Prius is kind of an outlier. Outlier. It has retained its inherent weirdness, um, you know, as, as a Toyota as Toyotas go. But all of you know all of their other hybrids, you know, the you don't you drive them and you don't even think about the fact that they're hybrids, except that they get better fuel efficiency than competing vehicles. You know, yeah, yeah. You, you just get in and drive. You don't you don't even have to think about it as something different. And you know, and the that's the sort of thing that sticks out though is like 24 miles to the gallon out of a vehicle the size of the Highlander that's that's pretty good uh-huh. it's, still, it's not great though like I no. I don't know how happy I'd be with that yeah I mean I I, I guess I better than the like 18 19 combined I get out of the Jeep most of the time so that's you know that's well, and, six you miles know, think, down better you know if you, if you think about you know if you look at it from the perspective of fuel consumption versus MPG yeah, and this this is a whole other conversation we can get well, into some other true. time. But you know, at the at the lower end of the scale, the the lower your MPG to start with, you know, every additional every every additional mile per gallon that you get um, at at the lower end of the scale means you're save you're actually saving more fuel in terms of how many gallons you're using for every hundred miles you drive. Um, as you start to get into you know the mid 30s and beyond for fuel economy, those incremental uh, improvements in miles per gallon actually save you very little fuel. You know, so that, and we'll we'll talk about this another time. But you know, if you're going from 18 to 24, it makes a much bigger difference than going from 34 to 40 or 40 to 50. Uh, so you'll actually have much much bigger savings. So if you need a bigger vehicle like the Highlander, you know, a hybrid <laughs> like that uh, would would make a lot uh, a lot more sense. All right, that's fair. I'm I'm sold. Um, and so we can stay, I was gonna say we can stay on the the Toyota uh, lineup for a little bit longer. I last week uh, I had a Prius Prime, hey, and I hold on for just a minute. You, you gotta oh, gotta okay. go choke the dog. Uh, no. Well, there, uh, <laughs> there's a car being delivered. My my wife's gonna go answer the door. Okay. All right. So go ahead, pick up with Prius Prime. Okay. Um. So the the Prius Prime, I confessed on Twitter that I actually liked it because I think I have a pretty good track record of not really liking the Prius. Um, it's it's really hard to knock the Prius Prime. It it does everything it's supposed to do exceptionally well, uh, and does everything that cars do exceptionally. Well. It's it's just it delivers on every expectation. Um, you know, it's fuel efficient. It gets 50 MPG or or, or better. Um, I found it was actually really best in an EV mode where it's quiet and punchy um, and you don't have the 
the buzz of the engine starting and running and shutting off and all that kind of stuff. Um, it's roomy. It it does have that plug-in capacity, which is nice. And it has really smart uses of technology. Uh, you can precondition the interior. You can schedule charging. You can switch the EV mode on and off so that you're not locked into eating up your battery capacity on the first however many miles of your, your highway trip. You can shut it off and run it as a hybrid in that state where it's going to be pretty efficient or in town, you can, um, you can, you can choose, you know, where you want to con consume that, that electrical engine energy. Um, and the, the past criticisms I've had of the Prius where it's, it's like soft and kind of floppy. Uh, the, the new TGNA platform, the last time I drove it, it felt really good. And it's, it's, it's good. It's solid. It rides well. It handles well. Uh, you know, it's, it's, a, it's a good car. <laughs> it's hard to hard to complain. And I think it looks better than the regular Prius. Uh, well, on that last point, I wouldn't necessarily. But then again, I, I don't particularly like any variant from a design perspective of the, the current generation Prius, the regular or the the, the prime. Um, I think for me, they're they skew a little too much towards the weird. Um, you know, I mean, they, they look futuristic, but not necessarily in a good way to my eye, but you know, Hey, I mean, design is a, is a matter of you know, individual perspective and taste. So. Yeah. I, and I agree. I mean, I think that they're, they're part of the Prius special sauce is that it looks weird. Um, and so maybe they went a little bit too far in, in that direction. It's uh, this week. I just got yesterday a, a Hyundai Ionic, which is a lot more conservative looking. Um, so I want to contrast that. Uh, I haven't spent enough time with it, so we'll talk about it next time. But uh yeah, it, it's a it's a little strange. Um, I'm, I've kind of gotten used to it. I can't say that I, I hate it, but it's, you know, it's a little weird looking for sure. Um, and in terms of things I didn't like about it, you know, Prius ergonomics are weird. Uh, they got switches sort of tucked around. I, I looked for like a day and a half before I found the seat heater switches so tucked way up under oh, yeah. the dash. Um, the shifter, you talked about it a little bit where it's over and up and over and down. I didn't like that. I, th you know, the, everybody's trying to redesign the shifter and that's, uh, well, that, I mean, that's a, that's a design that Toyota's used on the Prius for a couple of generations now. So, I mean, that, yeah. that's not, a, that's that actually, I think that that basic concept even goes back to the very first, the first generation Prius from 97. So, I still just, I still don't like it. Yeah, no, it. I, I agree. I, I don't, I don't particularly <laughs> like it either. Um, um it is what it is. Yeah, it is. Uh, the seats are OK, um, but they're uncomfortable for longer rides. And part of that is probably just, you know, you got to design a seat for a particular cost and a variety of body types. And I didn't find it super comfortable. Um, and the the biggest thing that I really did not like was the screen interface. Uh, it, when it's in day mode, it's you can see the screen refresh rate out of your peripheral vision. You can, it's, it's it flickers. <laughs> so you put it in night mode and it doesn't flicker. Uh, and it's just, you know, it, too much reliance on the touchscreen where there's, there's no buttons. Um, I, I agree. Totally. It's, it's slow. It's confusing. It's just not good. Uh, too much stuff is in there uh, from HVAC to radio to just, just stuff that you need and, and stuff that you need to not be distracted to use. So, um yeah <laughs> i have a little more to say about that yes yeah we will we will come back to that topic in in a few minutes yeah um 
the other but, vehicle. But suffice to say that, would you agree that touchscreens don't belong in cars, period? Uh, yes. <laughs> um, I, I'm hardening my position on that. I, ha, you know, because you can argue like, oh, sometimes they're okay. They work well for this. They work well for that. Obviously for Nav, um, it's hard to come up with an alternative that's, Different, that's better, I guess. Um, you can come up with stuff that's different, but you're inputting information into a device. How are you going to do that? Uh, so the touchscreen is kind of a natural fit for that. I I don't have a solution for it, but I really don't like this current way of doing it. Um, and that that actually brings me to the next car, uh, the XC60 Volvo XC60 T8, um, which is just really well done. It's so, it's so you've cool. come around to Casey Liss's philosophy that. That census is a good thing. No, no. The overall car oh. is a good thing. Okay. It's uh, it's a gorgeous design inside and out. Um, the materials are good. The build build quality is good. It's the first Volvo I can remember uh, of my own or a press car that didn't have some piece of interior trim buzzing. Really? <laughs> um, yeah. Uh, Must be something the, about the the Northeast because I've I've never had that problem in a Volvo. Oh man, I remember chasing buzzes in my Volvos, even my S60s. The first one we had was like maybe two and a half years old, and just the the trim would rub against the door panel, and it would just it would vibrate. And yeah, anyway, uh, the the XC60 is it's it's great overall and it's really it's a symbol of a resurgent volvo it's it's the right size it's priced very well it's beautiful um it's comfortable for the most part uh and you know the t8 with the the hybrid it's a strong powertrain it moves with authority i I got about 400 horsepower no and i got 22 miles to the gallon which is again like not as good as i would have expected but understanding that they have one engine now um and my Previous experience with Volvos was that the Turbo Five or the Twin Turbo Six, powerful but thirsty. Did, and did so, you, did you plug it in? I didn't plug this one in, okay. so uh, I didn't get a chance to do that. My time with it was a little short. Um, I wanted to, I just I didn't get to it. Um, I did plug the Prius in, which was actually really cool. Uh, I, I liked a lot of those features, and I'm sure that the Volvo has most most of that same kind of stuff uh, implemented, where you can you can precondition the interior and you uh-huh. can schedule charging and um, plugging it in gives you the benefit of running off the battery. Um, yeah, you can when you, you can get about 14, 15 miles. Well, maybe, maybe a little more on the XC60 because it's a little smaller and lighter, but about 14 or 15 miles of electric driving range out of the battery uh, in that one, uh, which is just pretty, I mean, it's it's less, you know, it's about half of what you get from the Prius. Yeah, but, but it's um, bigger. Yeah. So much bigger. Oh, yeah. Uh, yeah, and yeah, you know, the the XC90 T8, you know, is similar. You know, I was getting about 14 miles of electric range out of that. So, you know, if you if you do have one of those and you you keep it plugged in at night, you know, so you've got you know 14 miles of electric driving, your your overall average of just gas mileage um, is going to go up pretty dramatically. I mean, you're definitely going to get up into the into the 40s and beyond uh, if you factor that in versus your to- as a proportion of your total mileage. That's true. Uh, and that's that's fair. And I think if you were to, to own one of these things, um, that's certainly one of the thing. One of the reasons you'd want to buy it is because you, you have that battery. Otherwise, there's no point in buying, right. you know, like um, the the downside for me for charging is I don't have a garage. So I've got to string 110 out to the yeah. cars, which is, you know, if it rains or snows or something, 
it could be great. You energize the, <laughs> <laughs> the whole surrounding, the whole lawn has just got potential. One um, of these days, I'm going to get an electrician in to install a 220 line to my garage and put in a charger. That'd be great. Um, I would love that. I would like a garage first. <laughs> <laughs> well, you can always install um, one on the side of the house. Yeah, that's they, true. They, they have them. You know, a lot of most of them are designed for internal or uh, exterior use. So that's true. Uh, you know what? I can have some of my film electrician friends when we, we used to back in the day, we would get a tie in when we were running all tungsten lights. You they they consume a lot of current. Uh-huh. So if you were to shoot in a house, basically, you'd, you'd get a tie in. So you go around the fuse panel, <laughs> just tie in directly to the 100 amp service. Uh, um, lovely. Yeah, but because you, you know, wrong. Uh, well, I, that's why you have the electrician come down yeah, and do it. Exactly. Um, and they can tell you whether you got 220 or 110 and, and all of those things. But uh, I can have someone come out and, and do that. You know, uh, real gorilla shoots. You just like you grab a set of jumper cables and do it. <laughs> Not what I suggest. Um, but yeah, the, the XC60. And as a trained uh, professional, do not try I, this at home. <laughs> we use LED lights now and um, fluorescence. Uh, so, yeah, I don't have problems with Kino flows. They they plug into 110. No big deal. All right. So back to the Volvo. Yeah, back to the Volvo. It's, you know, it's very comfortable. It's very confident. It's a really well done uh, sort of midsize SUV. Uh, it, it's what Volvo should be doing. I'm, I'm really pleased with it. I was actually impressed. Uh, it starts at like 52, which is really aggressively good pricing for a vehicle. Is that for the T8? 52 for um, T8 or for the, the, the not the T6? Let me shoot. I had the sticker around here. Um I think that's maybe just for the T6. Um, so what I was driving was the, the T8 inscription, which was about 17K above. It was a $71,000, $72,000 sticker. Uh, but still, when you consider, you know, it's competing against an X5. X5 hybrid is going to be about that price, maybe more, and you're probably not going to get as much value. Um, also, because of Volvo's style, you're you're kind of getting into competition with... Range Rover, Land Rover as, as well, just because it's it's got that kind of look and, and cachet. They've actually done a lot to reinvigorate the Volvo brand uh, with the, the XC90 and now the XC60. I think that those yeah. those came as a shock to to the luxury buyer in a good way. Um, yeah, so actually, I'm, I'm looking at it right now, looking at the, the build and price um, and uh, the XC60 uh, hybrid, the, the, moment, the momentum package which is the base version starts at 52.9 yeah and they the r design which is the sportier version uh goes to 56.2 and then 56.7 for the inscription right so inscription at 56.7 is a fantastic deal yeah that's that's a really good price for this vehicle um and and like 52 is i understand we're talking over fifty thousand dollars for a car and that's that is sort of that's pricey but yeah as, as you said you know when you when you look at you know the the segment i mean you're talking you know premium suvs and actually even you know even mainstream suvs you know you, you look you start looking at you know some even like a chevy traverse you mm-hmm. know you're still you know uh nicely nicely equipped you're still looking well into the forty thousands for something like that um yeah so you know fifty you know fifty three grand you know, for the the plug-in hybrid version, you know, forty-one uh, is the starting price for the the base XC60. Uh, so, you know, that's actually a pretty good deal. Yeah, I, I mean, uh, that was one of the things that really stood out to me was uh, they are priced very aggressively against the market. Um, you know, my criticisms. Yeah, my my criticisms aside, um, 
it's just a very good vehicle. Uh, and so I was pleased to have, have spent some time with it. Um, you know, the ride and handling I prefer over the, the larger XC90 because it's, I think it's a little smaller, a little tighter. Uh-huh. Um, the, the, the engine note, you know, that, that, that engine a is fantastic for what it is. It's, it's a small two liter four cylinder and it kicks out 300 horsepower. Cause it's, it's, you know, turbocharged and supercharged and it's very, very responsive and linear. And I'm always impressed by it. Um, the one thing I found was that it's it, ambience wise, it's a little growly. You get used to it, but it, it that's kind of a small critique. Um, my larger criticisms are the seats, uh, and this is probably just also one of those things like my body shape or whatever, but the head restraints are unmovable and very far forward, very aggressive, uh, which forces me into a weird posture. And I've complained about it in other cars. And the problem here is that it can't be adjusted. So for me, it's a complete total deal breaker. And my S60 was like that as well. And I tried living with it there. So uh, what that meant was you had some weird seat back angle that was actually too far leaned back for overall comfort. And it's, it's a shame because for decades, Volvo had some of the best seats uh, in the business for sort of long haul driving. They were, they were properly supportive and, and, you know, ergonomically or uh, you know, anatomically correct and, and just, just very good seats. And I feel like that whiplash protection feature of the head restraint is actually, you know, doing them a disservice because I would not buy that car because of that, that seat design. Um, and other manufacturers have kind of solved it. You know, that the five series I just had uh, came with wonderful 20 way adjustable seats that also had ridiculous head restraints. I mean, those actually had a pyrotechnic charge in them <laughs> to, to make sure that they caught your head if you got hit. Um, but you could adjust the top of the seat that would articulate backward um, so something like that might be worthwhile for Volvo to consider, uh, because I, I found it again, like you, you wind up weird, like with your shoulders hunched, um, if you're not the right shape to fit. Uh, yeah. I mean, otherwise they're, they're, they're wonderful. The, the massage function was great. I told somebody about it. And he's like, Oh, I'd fall asleep. I was like, no, it no, keeps you awake. Yeah, it does. <laughs> uh, you know, I, I know on the, on the Mercedes, you know, last couple of Mercedes I drove, they had uh, massaging seats and, you know, on a long road trip, those are yeah. a huge help. And it sounds so first world, like heated steering wheel, a heated massaging seats. But I, you know what? If you're driving to or fro Thanksgiving and it's been a long drive, let me tell you, you would pay big money for massaging when, seats. Yeah, I mean, you know, when you, when you think about, you know, the stress of all the other things that happen around the holidays, you know, having... Having those kinds of features, you know, if you can afford it, you know, it's just it is nice to have. I thought they were fantastic and they they had, you know, a lot of intent. You could set the intensity and stuff. It was it was just really good. Uh, and so, you know, it's it's a great family vehicle for for long drives. It's good. It's a hybrid plug in. So it's efficient around town. And the, and the other thing, too, is at least for now, you know, depending on what happens with uh, whatever tax legislation the uh, Congress uh, ends up doing. Um, you can still get uh, a five thousand uh, dollar tax credit when you buy one of these. So oh, see, so seventy two becomes you know sixty seven. Yeah, that's not bad. Um, so we met, you mentioned Casey Liss, and we had him on a couple weeks ago and talked about the census system and his XC ninety. 
So like the Prius Prime, <laughs> that's the biggest downfall of the XC60. Uh, you know, his he pointed out uh, correctly that the system is very slow when first starting up, uh, like really, really slow to the point where it was pretty infuriating because you can be driving a mile or more depending on, on what you're doing before it actually becomes responsive. And I find that completely unacceptable. Uh, you know, the tech should be fully ready to go within seconds. Um, and, and maybe that's just my opinion. I know it has to go through like a power on self test and a boot up cycle and all that stuff, but it, it, and it would be a lot more expensive if it, if it were fully ready to go in seconds, but I, I feel it's a huge distraction. And so it's, I don't know, maybe it's just me, I, it, but I don't find it acceptable to have to wait for that kind of stuff to just work. Yeah. And you know, from, from there, why, why don't we transition into, uh, uh, one of the topics you had on the list, which uh, <laughs> Alex Roy on Twitter the other day posted uh, a couple of pictures, uh, you know, uh, the interior of Tesla Model 3 and the new Aston Martin Vantage and, you know, captioned it, you know, if one of these is right, the other must be wrong. And, um, you know, I, I haven't read through the whole thread and I haven't had a chance to talk to Alex in the last couple of days, but I'm pretty sure that his perspective is that the Tesla is the one that's right. And the the Aston is wrong, and I could not more wholeheartedly disagree with that. You know, I mean, even though there's a lot of buttons and switches in the Aston, the I think the the Tesla approach of putting everything into the touchscreen is absolutely wrong. As long as we still have to be actually driving these cars, you know, someday, you know, when when we do actually, you know, ride around in autonomous mobility fleets, and you know, nobody's actually you know controlling the vehicle. That's fine. You know, put all the touchscreens you want in that. But for the time being, you know, you, basic functional controls should not be buried in a touchscreen menu ever. Period. That's yeah. You know, that Twitter thread evolved. It, it got large where, uh, to the point where, you know, last night it actually wound up a, a discussion over <laughs> shifter interfaces. Um, but it's it's true. Uh the the touchscreen is really really distracting um and i don't know a better way to to put that kind of stuff in the cars and and have it be you know the right the right price and the sort of have all the functions and and the actual reliability and and, and stuff they get out of it so I, I get it i get why it's there but uh i i'm surprised to hear you say that you think that the the touchscreen would be his preference um i, I kind of understood to be that the Aston might be his preference with, with sort of more dedicated functions on single switches and stuff. Um, that's certainly my preference is I, I want aircraft style standardized controls because we're seeing a lot of different automakers try different stuff. And that leads to a lot of confusion and it's the confusion. It bites in the worst possible scenarios you know when you're trying to make a three-point turn on a busy street and they've reconfigured the shifter like the shifter in the xc90 for example um you have to press it twice to get it to engage because it's going through neutral every time uh -huh. but it's not a single motion you have to press it you know if you're going from reverse to drive it's it's back down to neutral and then you got to press it back down again to get into drive and it's it's just this like you have to relearn behavior and when you're in a high stress situation you kind of revert to your lizard brain. Yep. And, and so those things that you've learned over decades, now you have to, to relearn. And, and that's where you're going to introduce the, the potential for, for, you know, pretty bad 
errors. Um, it just seems so easy to not do that kind of stuff and, and just understand that uh, people are trained a certain way and programmed a certain way. And, and um, you know, if we could standardize controls, I think it would it would you'd know what to expect in, in every car. And I, I don't see it ever happening. But um, yeah, uh, to the to the and, and the shifter thing went on for a while to the point where um, the new GM, I, I think it's in the the terrain, the GMC terrain. It has like six buttons yeah. for, for well, shifting. And, 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 you know, GMC is not the first to do that. Um, you know, Lincoln did, you know, started doing that um, when they launched the current generation MKZ back in 2012. Yeah. And that system's bad. Yeah, it is. It's, it's, I, I agree. It's not good. Yeah. Um, the, and the GMC one is even weird. Like it takes up the space of the, like a radio down. It's down at the bottom of the center stack and there's, you know, park and reverse neutral drive and then plus minus and, and low range they're all on individual switches and they're they're laid out horizontally it just seems horribly confusing to me although people who have uh used it say it's actually it's not bad um and that you know it's sort of easy to uh it to to crap on it while you know we have these competing priorities of of packaging versus uh sort of convention and you know they're, they're finding ways to to change that uh, so, you know, because like a shifter stock is not physically connected to the transmission any longer. There's no need for it. And it does eat up a lot of room. And, you know, people want space for their phones, their stuff, uh, more tech. You know, but we yeah, we do need some standardized interfaces for how those work, you know, so that it's consistent from one car to another. I mean, you know, in the past, you know, with the, you know, with automatic transmissions, with the, the Prindle, you know, the park reverse neutral drive low, you know, right. those were, you know, somewhat standardized, you know, um, because they were mechanical linkages. Well, they also, they they wound up being how much you could tweak it, you know? Yeah. Uh, they wound up being standardized. That's actually covered in unsafe at any speed. So Uh back in 1965, it sort of gives you a little bit of the history about why we wound up with the Prindle. Uh, other automakers had implemented it different ways. And, you know, some of them, you, you know, you, you pass through, uh, drive first to get to reverse or something like that. It it just led to confusion and to to accidents. Um, so it wound up being that way for for a reason. Um, you know the earlier push button transmissions in the fifties and early sixties, uh, they they had their own issues. Uh, where you couldn't be sure that the car was actually engaged in park and and stuff like that. So it's just this weird full circle thing. But yeah, touchscreens are not a thing I like. I like them less every day. I I totally agree. Um, So like when you first encountered a touchscreen, what was your, your sort of first, uh, and I'm sure this is years ago now, but what was your first sort of reaction to it? Uh, You know, at at first, you know, it seemed kind of cool, you know, in a, in a techie kind of way, but as you know, the more I used them, the more I realized, you know, that just, you know, they, they didn't really work very well, you know, in the car environment. Um, it, it, it was just not a good interface, you know, especially, you know, in the early days, you know, because they, you know, they tended to be so much slower than they are now and, and less responsive. You know, you had resist, resistive touchscreens as opposed to the capacitive touchscreens that are, that we have on our phones and that are increasingly getting used in cars. Um, you know, so they were often unresponsive. Um, you know, and of course, you know, the interfaces, you know, designed, you know, uh, and cars, you know, have often been, you know, just atrocious. You know, they use the graphical interface. Um, you know, they, they 
kind of they've often been really bad. You know, and part of that is because you know every manufacturer wants to have their own unique look. You know, so that you get into a car, you see the, the interface, you know, oh, this is a Ford, this is a Mercedes, this is a BMW. Um, you know, and they, the 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 drive to make them different often resulted in them being worse. You know, and whatever you may think about, you know, um, Apple CarPlay and Android Auto, you know, at least they're consistent. Uh, right. You know, and and in fact, you know, the the nice thing about them. You know, is that those two companies have, um, because of their level of control over the the interface, you know, even though you have the ability to use multiple different types of media apps, for example, you know, if you're you can listen to Spotify or Apple Music or Google Play Music or you know Pandora, re- regardless of which one you select, you get the same player interface, so it's consistent across the board. You know, so it it takes the content. And presents it in a, with a common user interface. You know, same thing with all the other aspects of the system. Um, and so I think that that that's definitely a step in the right direction. Um, but you know, I still the the problem is you know while the, those systems can be used with non-touch interfaces like in the Mercedes or or BMW, um, you know, the, they're not optimized for a control knob type of interface. So they yeah. they work, but perhaps actually you know, not as well. You know, so, so you know, counterintuitively, you know, the, I, I actually like the control knobs better. The you know the iDrive, you know, Mercedes Command, the Mazda style uh, controllers that compared to a touch interface. Um, but they don't always they they work, but they're not they're not quite as elegant with those uh, with those smartphone projection uh, interfaces. Yeah. And, you know, I mean, it's it's not something that's going to be solved real quickly, but, uh, you know, because like some people have different preferences. I, for instance, don't like swipe or pinch controls. It's just not my thing. Um, but I found that I actually really liked the gesture controls in the BMW, um, which I was very surprised by. Uh, but figuring out what to put into the touchscreen shouldn't be this hard. You know, HVAC does not belong in the touchscreen. No, it's because you. I, I found in both the Prius and the, the XC60, it took me, it felt like minutes to figure out where the thing I wanted was, how to adjust it. And in the meantime, I'm barreling down the road, mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, like it just felt really unsafe. And for, for a company like Volvo, who's set their reputation on safety, that seems very wrong to me. And and safety is pretty popular across the board. Now it's a, it's a big concern. So it just seems like we're we're talking about making cars with all these active safety systems, and we're also actively distracting the crap out of drivers, which is yeah, like. Yeah, and I think I think something that'll help a lot is you know, as we get better voice recognition systems. Uh, you know, I mean, Nuance, you know, who does most of the embedded voice recognition systems that are in cars today, you know, they've made a lot of progress on uh, connected uh, voice recognition systems. So, you know, the big advantage that. Google and to a lesser degree Apple have with their their voice rack, you know that that's in Android Auto and CarPlay, is the fact that they're connected uh, through the cloud, yeah, and so they can do a lot something a lot closer to natural language recognition. So it's a lot less frustrating to use most of the time, and yeah. so that that helps a lot. So you actually don't have to touch the screen. You know, if I, you know, if I want to listen to you know uh, to a podcast, you know, when I'm driving in a car with Android Auto. I'm going to say, okay, Google, 
play accidental tech podcast uh, in Pocket Cast, and it'll play it, and I never have to touch the screen. You know, right. Or so if I want to navigate somewhere, you know, say, you know, okay, Google, you know, navigate to uh, the Renaissance Center. Oops, <laughs> sorry, my my phone recognized the. I don't know if you picked that up or not. <laughs> That's awesome. My, my, phone, I, I, my phone responded to you know to that command. Uh, and sorry for anybody <laughs> who's who's uh, driving uh, in a car with Android Auto uh, yeah. and listening to this. I apologize sincerely. Uh, well, the same thing happened to me. Um, I had the chance to uh, try out the um, the Garmin Speak, uh-huh. and I, I was actually on the phone talking about it with my wife as we both commuted to our jobs. And I was like, "Yeah, it's it's interesting." And you know, you say, uh, "Alexa, do this thing," and and I I didn't realize, or, or you know, that what I was doing and it's (laughs) like, I see the thing start spinning and it's like, what would you like me to do? Um, And I was like, oops, I just woke it up. Um, Well, you know, know, what nuance is doing though, is they're doing a hybrid system, you know, because they they recognize the fact that, you know, there are going to be times when you may lack connectivity, you know, so they'll have a cloud connected component, you know, that, you know, if, if you have a good connection, you know, it'll go out, it'll send your, whatever you say to the cloud, interpret it and, you know, then execute the command, which is what Google and Apple do. Um, and then if you don't have a good connection, then it will do a subset of that locally on the on the device. And that's, you know, um, over the next year or two, as basically almost every new car is going to have connectivity built in. Um, yeah. We're going to see that implemented on more and more new cars. And I think that'll help a lot to get get us away from having to actually use the touchscreen interface. And that's, you know, unfortunately, you know, with Tesla, that's one of the things that you know, they because they want to they want to do as much as they can in house. You know, and vertically integrate everything. You know, there's a lot of places where they they actually don't have very good strengths, and and this is one of them. You know, so using any of this stuff in a Tesla is is problematic at best. Well, and you know, I understand being sort of integrated, but that's stupid because Nuance has such a head start on you, um, and other companies doing the same stuff. Like, don't be dumb. Buy it from the supplier. Make a deal. Yeah. You know, like um, the issue I see with that is uh, if you've got the connectivity in the car, that's great until it's a used car or it's a few years old and you're done paying for it. And then you have another subscription to keep up. So, you know, well, and again, this this is one of the one of the other trends that we're seeing is that, um, you know, in order to uh, make sure that cars are connected so that they can start supporting things like over the air update going forward, most manufacturers are now starting to price in the cost of basic data services into the, the bill of materials, into the, the purchase price of the car. You know, so most of the time now when you buy a new car, you know, you're in a lot, in a, many cases, you're getting you know, as much as five years or more of basic connectivity included in the price of the car. So you don't have an additional subscription. And I, yeah, but, I think yeah, you know, gonna, people are... well, I think what they're going to end up doing is they're going to maintain that, you know, going forward, you know, they're, they're probably going to extend it beyond the five years and basically just make it for the life of the car. Um, so that they have that connection so they can do the, the OTA updates, but that'll also enable some of these other connectivity features. Yeah, that's that's something to watch because I, I, that's going to come to a head at, at, at a certain point, you know, especially with the average car being what, 12 years old now. Mm-hmm. Um, that an automaker is going to keep you connected to their their connectivity for 12 years. Well, and that's that's a single purchase. Know, that's that's where mobility as a service comes in. And that's one of the reasons why, you know, I think most people are never going to have the opportunity to actually buy an autonomous car because they need they need to keep them connected in order to support them. And 
the the only way that you can fund that, <clears throat> you know, if customers don't want to pay for subscription services, monthly subscriptions, or things like you know for their connectivity, uh, because they're already paying for their phone and all these other things, um, the the one way to do that is by offering the vehicles as part of a a mobility service that you, know, you pay on demand, you know, and then that funds the ongoing development and updates of software and, and everything else in the vehicle. I mean, that's, that, that's fair. It's interesting. Um, you know, you mentioned Tesla, so we should, we should move on to our weekly Tesla trash talk. <laughs> well, <it's> almost <laughs> weekly. Okay. So th it's been a couple of weeks now, but in the meantime, they came out with a semi truck and uh, a roadster and they have tried to successfully distract us from the disaster of the model three. Uh, so yeah, I mean, those are some good jumping off points. <laughs> yeah. So while I was in California last week in Northern California, uh, Tesla was down at their, uh, you know, their design facility, you know, adjacent to, uh, uh, the SpaceX factory, um, showing off, you know, the, the semi truck that, uh, Elon's been teasing for, for a long time now. Um, and then they rolled out a surprise, you know, after showing off the semi, the electric semi, um, they rolled out uh, the next generation Roadster, which. Yeah. And <laughs> one one more thing. Look, our newest vaporware. Yes. Well, <laughs> well, as, it, as it happens, they're, they're really both vaporware at this point. Uh, you know, I mean, the, the Roadster, you know, I mean, I, I was one of the, the first people outside of Tesla to get to test drive the Roadster back in January of 2008, um, you know, that. The, they brought in the the four buff books, and then uh, I was the first uh, online writer to get to drive it. And you know, I loved that car. I mean, it was it was a fantastic car, but I mean, it was it was an electric version of a Lotus Elise. Yeah. Well, so that's the thing that that's one of the things I was uh, talking about in my my conversation with a coworker about Lucid. I was like, you know, Tesla is in this place where they've done great things to push everybody. We, we repeat this every time we talk about it, you know, they've, they've sort of fostered a lot of change and that's great, but what they're falling down on and what they should have together by now is car building. And, you know, the first roadster, it was built by a subcontractor. It was built by Lotus most, to most, a large yeah, degree. I mean, the, 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 the chassis, you know, the glider was built by Lotus and, and shipped over from England and Tesla assembled the battery packs and the motors and installed those in California and shipped them to their customers. So you would hope that they would have learned more about car building from Lotus, who they have their own challenges with car building. But but overall, like uh, it seemed like the Model S was really where they came up that learning curve and they hired a lot of industry veterans and, and they, they got it mostly together. But now more or less, I mean, they still have a lot of quality and build issues right. on that car. Sure, they have a ways to go, but uh, track day pillars and you know things like that. Yeah, it's, those are things that they should have worked out by now. And and that should be informing stuff like the Model 3. And uh, I don't I don't necessarily see it. You know, they're they're investing in these distinct platforms and they're expecting that each platform is going to fund the next. And profits just are not like that <laughs> in the car business. Maybe for Tesla well, they are, you know, but I don't the, think the, they are. The, 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 the original plan, you know, which, as you said, was to, you know, start at the high end and, you know, get, uh, early adopters who were willing to buy into the concept and, you know, provide enough revenue by buying these, these expensive cars, that money would be turned, you know, turned back around, reinvested in the company to develop the next generation, more affordable products, higher volume products, and eventually bring it down market to the mainstream, which is what the, the Model 3 is supposed to be. Except there was one little glitch in that plan that that whole premise is based on 
the theory that at each stage along the way, the products you're producing will generate more revenue than it costs to build them. So you have <laughs> some funds to invest. Yeah. And they've never actually achieved that profitability that they need, uh, despite, you know, they're they're gloating about their operating their gross operating margins. I the gross, gross margins mean nothing on, on the cars. Yeah, which is meaningless because basically all that is, you know, the price, the selling price of the car minus the, the bill of materials price. It doesn't factor in all the other overhead costs, the cost of running a factory, the cost of developing a vehicle. And, you know, the, the reality is that they have consistently lost money for the last dozen years. And so they, you know, every, at every stage along the way, they've had to keep going back, either going back to the stock market to sell more shares, to raise more cash, to, you know, to have enough cash balance in order to keep funding the business going forward or selling junk bonds, as they did a few months ago, um, or, you know, pre selling, you know, uh, taking pre-orders for cars that will be delivered somewhere years into the future, uh, which is right. exactly what this Roadster is all about, this new Roadster. You know, while it's nice to have, you know, a new Roadster, you know, it, they're, you know, what they've got is, you know, they've got the Founders Series, which are the first thousand cars, which they're pre-selling for $250,000 each. And you have to pay in full, you know, in advance, you know, to get on that list for one of those cars. And then the regular ones will be a mere $200,000 each. Yeah, and and I'm sure that they will probably you know sell out those those founder series cars you know if they haven't already you know and and that'll put another 250 million dollars in the bank. But the problem is you know Tesla has been consistently burning you know about between three and four billion dollars a year in cash you know negative cash flow, which is not a way to make a sustainable car business or any other business yeah. for that matter. Well, and one of the things when you're manufacturing any product is you want to get over that initial hump of, you know, yeah, you're going to have some quality issues. You're going to have some, some, some things that are going to cost you money. But as you fine tune it, you know, they've been making the Model S for how many Five years, years now? now. If, right. So, uh, and they still haven't got it all fine tuned. It, like, they should every year be able to make that car, you know, more and more profitable for them as they continue to refine. And you see, Mainstream automakers do this. That's, I mean, that's part of the reason for mid-cycle refresh is you go in and you fix a bunch of big stuff and you give it a little tweak on the styling and off you go. Um, but also every year there's, there are some refinements, um, going along, you know, you, you watch the, the first, first couple of years of a model are, there's a lot of differences between that and, you know, the last couple of years, five to seven years later, they're, you have to track the changes, you know, sometimes parts don't fit because they've been swapped out for cheaper assemblies and stuff. And, you know, the suppliers change and all of those things. And that, that has happened with the model S to a degree, but like, yeah, I mean, they've, they made, they've made a bunch of running changes and it. You know, this is one of the things, one of the differences in the way Tesla does things versus most other manufacturers. Um, you know, most, most, most manufacturers, I mean, they'll, they will occasionally make some running changes to a part, but for the most part, you know, they, you know, they have an annual model changeover and they, they swap, you know, if they're going to do changes, they do it at the, the model year change, you know, and they do a bunch of stuff at one time. Whereas Tesla just, you know, as soon as, as soon as they deem something ready, which is a whole other story, um, they, you know, <laughs> they, they start, they do running changes, you know, and so they, they don't tip, they don't have the typical model year changeovers like most companies do. The problem is, you know, they start, they tend to start stipping, shipping stuff 
before it, you know, other companies would consider it to be ready for production. Uh, yeah, well, and there's there's a really good reason for for doing it in the, at that sort of model year changeover orderly fashion, you know, because what you wind up with is a bunch of cars in the field that are essentially one offs. You know, they're all slightly different. Mm hmm. Depending on what, you know, have they downloaded the update? Have they not? You know, where did, where did, you know, at what serial number did we start that change? And, and I don't know. It seems like a, a management disaster in terms of just trying to keep that all straight. Yeah. And I think, you know, I mean, that's, that's one of the fundamental problems with, with Tesla is, is management. Um, you know, as much credit as I give Elon Musk as a visionary in terms of moving, you know, moving electric cars forward and making the concept of, the modern battery electric car, you know, a mainstream idea that people are increasingly willing to accept and, you know, making, you know, more affordable space travel. Um, you know, I think he's actually a really <laughs> terrible manager. Uh, I think that's that's probably what it is. Like, I don't think he's just running a Ponzi scheme. I think yeah, he's no, really I, passionate I, I, about this. Yeah, stuff. I, I think, you know, the things that he says, you know, no matter how crazy they may sound, you know, whether it's the boring company or the Hyperloop or going to Mars. I, I really do believe that, that he actually believes all, in all of this stuff. And he, I mean, he is totally committed to it. The problem is, you know, there's a big difference between believing in an, in an idea and actually being able to execute on it. And, you know, visionaries are great at coming up with great ideas that they're totally all in on. But at some point you need to bring in the people that are capable of executing those ideas and making them a reality. And you need and more importantly, you need to empower those people. You need to give them the freedom to actually do it. And this is, you know, from from everything I've heard from, you know, stories from talking to people who have worked at Tesla, uh, my own experience, you know, with, with talking to Elon over the years um, and from other people that, you know, that I've talked to uh, that have talked to him a lot more than I have. You know, he's just not willing to give up that level of control. And well, I, I, you know, that's that's part of the visionary mindset. They're like, you know what I mean? Is that uh, you, you saw that with with other other people throughout history where, you know, you, you have the personality and the, the vision and you your your trust in yourself is is uh, bolstered by the fact that you have seen success. So it is hard often for those visionary people to be, you know, good managers. I mean, you saw it with like GM, right? Billy Durant. Yeah. Um, well, and, you know, I mean, even, even Elon himself, you know, er, you know, earlier in his career in, in the 90s, you know, his his first couple of companies that he started, you know, um, I think was it X, not X, uh, PayPal. Well, pay, and, before PayPal, you know, there was the, the first one, you know, and then PayPal, you know, both of those, he ended up losing control of those companies. Um, and that was that was all, you know, he, he hated that. He hated the fact that he lost control of those companies. And so, you know, when it came to SpaceX and then Tesla, you know, he has, you know, really tried to retain a stranglehold. And part of that is making sure that he keeps a big enough ownership stake in, in all of those companies, you know, and, and that's, you know, this is one of the other one of the other issues. Uh, you know, every time, you know, Tesla has to go back to the stock market to raise funds, he personally has to buy a big chunk of that stock in order to keep from his shareholding being diluted. You know, so he's he owns about 22 percent or so of Tesla's stock. Um, and, you know, when they go out and sell, you know, a billion, billion and a half dollars worth of shares to raise, you know, to, to you know, bolster their bottom line, you know, he's got to buy, you know, 20, 22 percent of that uh, himself, which means that he has personally borrowed, you know, 
somewhere around 700 to 800 million dollars against his own shareholdings, you know, using his own equity as um, collateral. Yeah. So he personally, as an individual, has borrowed this money from banks to buy these shares to maintain his <laughs> his own uh, equity level in the company. And I think, you know, I think that's problematic. I think he, you know, I think at this point, you know, the company, you know, he needs to step back a little bit and, you know, let some people that really know how to run things, you know, um, you know, take care of the execution part and just just focus on ideas, you know, and, you know, hopefully, you know, I, you know, ideas like the semi, you know, I think are and, and also the Roadster, I think, are somewhat problematic because I think, you know, the Roadster. OK, fine. Goes from zero to sixty in one point nine seconds. Now goes to fifty miles. Who cares? Yeah. Who, Who cares? gives a damn? You know. Okay, we've <laughs> proven that an electric car can go as fast or can accelerate as fast or faster than anything else on the road. You know, and I think you know that the Roadster is just as irrelevant as a Bugatti Veyron um, or you know, frankly, a Corvette ZR1. <laughs> you know, um, you know. I mean, these car, you know, these these multi-million dollar cars, and granted, the Roadster is nowhere near as expensive as a Bugatti or or a McLaren P1 or a Porsche 918, um, but they're they're all equally irrelevant. Um, you know, you you're not really proving anything with the technology anymore. You know, you're you're, you're shaving off you know fractions of a second off the acceleration times. It just doesn't matter. You know, because Which, you can't yeah, use like it anywhere. Right. You could do it once, first yeah. of all, like and then it's going to freak out. <laughs> Don't go drag racing with these cars. Um, and that's not what they're for. You know, that's I, I don't know. It just to me, it feels like they've been around long enough now. They've got enough practice at this that they should stop being stupid and trying to, you know, reinvent the wheel, build a good, solid twenty five thousand dollar, thirty thousand dollar electric car that gets, you know, 300 miles of range and seats five and you know, is basically a Camry. Uh, that was the promise of the Model 3. You can't buy the $35,000 version of it. You, you can buy the 40-something thousand dollar version of it right now. Um, and I, I don't think it has the range. I think it's got build quality issues that they should know know how to do better now. Uh, and it seems like there's, again, just management is a nightmare of, you know, do they actually have production lines up and running? They're shipping cars that are not complete and completing them at their their destination, which seems like, you know, you know, that's that's software industry design ship test nonsense that shouldn't happen with a car. And they're going to get their clock cleaned um, by more established manufacturers that that, you know, car making is hard and they know how to do it. And also the electric stuff uh, is is uh, something it's an engineering challenge and they have very good engineers and a lot of them and they have money to put into it that they're, they're not you know, making panicked uh, stock sales to sort of float the company in a, in a kind of a Ponzi scheme. So, I mean, there's structural challenges with the Tesla business that shouldn't be there. Um, you know, they they have an opportunity with with their semi, but they're not. And Jonathan Ramsey actually did a really great yeah, write up. That was, for that was a great this. article that he did. Yeah. John, um, Jonathan was one of our former colleagues at Autoblog. And you know, he spent, uh, you know, he, he became a truck driver earlier this year, I guess, for I guess for a book. He was uh, he is such an on. international man of mystery. <laughs> yeah, <I'll say. laughs> um, but, you know, I got information out of his article that I didn't get from Tesla when they introduced the semi and everybody thinks that they've introduced a semi that's going to run, you know, coast to coast. And that's not, that's not what the Tesla semi is, is good for. 
that's j it's just the wrong kind of technology for that use. Um, but for port work or for intercity lines, it's great. Um, but it, it almost like seems what, like uh, Cummins recently announced, right? <laughs> um, you know, it just it seems like they didn't actually go out and drive trucks or talk to truck drivers because a lot of like a lot of the basic uh, stuff that, that a truck driver is concerned with seems like that, you know, very much like our, our concerns about touchscreens. Like this is the way it is. We think this is revolutionary and you're just going to live with it. And, and a, the trucks are going to be expensive. Uh, yeah. They'll be, they won't be using fuel in one sense, but they can use electricity and how, you know, are you going to charge it? And uh, how long is that going to take? Um, and, just practically they you know the center seating position and the lack of mirrors and and the 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 way the cab is set up with all the screens and stuff yeah it looks really pretty in a press release but that's a vehicle that i think would would drive an experienced trucker bonkers and they're not you know a company's not going to invest in something that makes their fleet you know uh that that much less efficient you know when it just takes up time to to essentially refuel it by charging or uh, slows you down when you're handing over documents and stuff. And, and just a lot of the things that they just seem like big missteps that could have been, could have been avoided by, by like actually seriously doing it and collaborating with, with the people who are going to use your product. So, and I don't know the whole story, but it feels like it was, it was like, well, we're going to make a truck and we're going to do it the Tesla way. Yeah. Like, you know, and you know, um, some, you know, it's, it's estimated that, you know, in order to get this, you know, 500 mile range that they promise, you know, that's going to take about a one megawatt hour battery. So that's 10 times the size of the battery in a, in a Model S P100. Yeah. And so a, a thousand kilowatt hours. And they also promise that you'll be able to charge it, you know, to 400 miles of range. You know, so that's that's going to be 80 percent charge in 30 minutes from these new mega chargers that they're promising. Well, you know, if we if you assume that it's, you know, a, a thousand kilowatt hour battery, you know, 80% of that, you know, 800 kilowatt hours, that's going to be, uh, you know, and to do that in 30 minutes, you're talking about 1600 kilowatts charging power to do that. <laughs> Just for, for reference, today's superchargers do about 120 kilowatts. So 1600 kilowatts, is that 1.6 megawatts? Yes. Yeah. Of power um, to, to charge, to, char to get 800 kilowatt hours of charge in 30 minutes. And that's for one truck. That's one truck. Yeah. Yeah. You're going to you're going to brown then, out of town. The season <laughs> chargers are all going to be solar. No. Yes. Uh, well, that's what he said. Like, solar powered. Mega where chargers. are you going to find a solar farm that large? <laughs> I, I mean. <sighs> and, and we have and there's no indication of how much these things are. These trucks are going to cost. But, you know, yeah. if you again, you know, if we assume that, you know, one megawatt hour battery, um, you know, even even the best estimates, you know, that Tesla is claiming of where they're going to be, you know, by 2020 with their battery costs are $100 a kilowatt hour. You know, so that's a hundred thousand dollar battery pack in this truck. I, I mean, you know, to be you, fair, if you, if you take out the cost of, you know, a diesel powertrain in a traditional truck. Right. OK, you're, you're you're looking, you know, probably at least an 80 to 90 thousand dollar price premium for this truck. Yeah. So what what do you think a diesel powertrain costs? Uh, uh, I, I would probably somewhere in the in the ten thousand dollar range. Really? Just for for like a I mean, I don't for, even know. Yeah, I mean, for like one of those big diesel engines and the transmission and everything. Yeah, that seems low. 
Uh, I guess to a manufacturer, it'd be ten thousand dollars. Yeah, I mean, the wholesale cost cost price. Yeah, probably yeah. probably uh, maybe fifteen. You know, ten to 15, say ten to 15, Let's say fifteen. Okay, so even even if we go, you know, even if we say twenty. Okay, so that's still an and you um, need some some massive power electronics in this thing you know to put that kind of power through and that's true it's a lot of money too you know so yep. you know your the incremental cost is probably you know for the electric truck versus a diesel truck it's probably going to be somewhere in the hundred thousand dollar range yeah, I, I mean, I, I and you're going to get probably less life. Like the, the things that with the, the diesel trucks is they're a known entity. We know that we get what, f- they're, 500,000 they're or a million design, miles. You know, the, the truck the engine manufacturers design those engines to run a million miles. Right. Without an overhaul. I, I, and, and yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm sure that, you know, intercity, they probably get that. Maybe port work, they get less just because of the nature of the use. Right. It, it, Either or, like they 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 run for a long time. They can be overhauled for you know a reasonable fee, um, and then they go right back into service. It's it's just they get a lot of challenges ahead of them. Which seems like again, uh, they've set themselves up for failure in a market that's very particular about the tools it uses. It's one thing to 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 try to set the sort of greater automotive world on its ear, right? The consumer market. Um, when you're taking essentially a a, a professional tool and really changing it I, I that's very hard to do and uh you know the whole industry is set up around a certain cost of equipment i i don't i'm not seeing it but you know walmart's invested so yeah well i mean that you know they they you know promise to you know uh test out some of these trucks and like here in michigan uh meyer which is a chain of of grocery stores you know that operates in in the midwest you know in michigan and indiana and i think illinois um, you know, they're, you know, they've pre-ordered four of them, you know, but, you know, for them, you know, for them, it could actually make sense. Um, I mean, Meyer is a company that has long, um, you know, supported, you know, various alternative fuels ventures, you know, all their stores, you know, they have, they have fueling stations at their stores. Um, and, you know, most of them, um, have E85 pumps. Many of them have, uh, CNG pumps, you know, so if you got a natural gas vehicle, like the one nearest to me here, you know, a couple minutes away from here, uh, has a, C, you know, has a CNG uh, pump there. So, you know, and they have biodiesel and, you know, so they support all kinds of different alternatives. And so they're, they're, they're and they, and a number of their stores have supercharger stations as well. So they're willing to try out different things. And so, you know, because they're a regional uh, chain, you know, a 500 mile range could actually work reasonably well for them, you know, and it wouldn't necessarily be as problematic as it would be for, you know, truly long haul trucking, uh, like trans, you know, transcontinental trucking, uh, like, like what, um, Jonathan talked about. So there's, you know, I think, I think there's, I I just, I doesn't seem to me like, you know, this concept is necessarily going to work for the kinds of things that Tesla has talked about. Um, you know, but I think, you know, if they, again, you know, if they stayed more focused, and done something along the lines of what Cummins uh, has recently announced, you know, a, a day cab, you know, where, you know, right. the trucks only run, you know, 100, 150 miles a day, you know, give the, give the truck a 200 mile range and, you know, it'd be fine, you know, and it, it would actually probably be really practical. And most of those trucks, you know, they, they return to base at night. You can plug them in, charge them overnight and, you know, they're back, you know, back on the road in the morning again. 
Yeah, I mean, it's it's kind of like knowing your market um, and it almost feels like a product without market research. So I I don't know. I mean, stranger things have happened, but I, I just don't I don't know that the prospects are, are real good for this. And, and um, it all feels like a distraction from what's going on with the Model 3, which is way behind it in terms of deliveries and just that that rollout's just not going well. So I think that that was is kind of like a hey, shiny object. Yeah, <laughs> kind of thing. Squirrel. Um, so, all right, squirrel. Let's jump to beating up on our other favorite, <laughs> favorite company, um, uh, Uber. Uber. Just when things seem to be getting quiet over there. So briefly this morning, um, or last night, I guess it came out. Uh, so Uber was hacked last year, and. Uh, a bunch of consumer data was stolen, but more significantly, a bunch of driver data was stolen, including uh, license num- uh, driver's license numbers and stuff like that. Um, we didn't find out about it last year because Uber paid the company that stole the data or whoever stole the data $100,000 to destroy it. Um, that seems so, so shady on so many levels. And now Uber is on the hook for potentially hundreds of millions of li- of dollars of liability because uh, when you have this kind of thing happen you're you're obligated to notify consumers and if you don't then you're you're much more liable so uber has very nicely set themselves up for some kind of lawsuits or class action or or whatever so good to go, go going guys <laughs> uh I, do, words fail me. I don't, I don't know. <laughs> what's your take on the whole situation? So, you know, what, what's what's fascinating about this you know, is you've got companies like Uber and Lyft and, you know, in other parts of the world, Didi and Get and Get Around and um, all these other uh, mobility service providers. <clears throat> and, you know, the, the presumption from uh, a bunch of uh, experts, quote unquote, um, I can see the air quotes from here. Is, is that you know this the whole mobility service thing is going to completely overtake the auto industry? You know, in the next five to ten years, um, and I think in the long term it probably will, um, but I think it's going to take a hell of a lot longer than the time period that that a lot of people are talking about um, because of things like this. You know, if if we're going to expect people to give up their cars and ride first of all you know take mobility service you know mobility on demand everywhere and eventually automated mobility on demand um we got to make sure this stuff is secure you know it's it i mean there, there's there's a number of things that have to be done right first of all the the, the technology's got to work right you know the, you know especially for automated the technology's got to work right all the time and then the the these systems have to be absolutely secure you know, and whether it's the, the back end data, you know, the data centers, you know, where they're storing customer data or the vehicles themselves or the connections to the vehicles, all that stuff has to be secured. And if it's not, people are not going to accept this stuff and they're they're not going to use these services. And they're, you know, all of the money that's been invested in developing all this stuff is going to be for not, um, you know, and, you know, Uber, Uber is a prime example of both. Um, over the years, abusing the data that they have and not protecting that data, you know, in this case. And so that's that's a real that's a real problem that they're going to have to address 
Um, you know, and interestingly, you know, about a, uh, what, I guess about a year and a half ago, they actually hired uh, two of the preeminent experts in cybersecurity, Charlie Miller and Chris Balasek. Charlie and Chris were the, the guys that, you know, became most prominently known for the, the Jeep hack a couple of years back. You know, but they've been doing this stuff for more than a decade. And, you know, some of their, their automotive um, research efforts, you know, go back to at least 2009, 2010. And both of those guys last year actually went to work for Uber, um, you know, in their advanced technologies group. You know, so they were working on the automated driving programs, you know, doing the cybersecurity component of that. Um, and um, late last year, um, Charlie left Uber to go to, first to Baidu, I think. And then uh, earlier, like this earlier this summer, uh, Chris left and he went to Cruise Automation. And now Charlie is also working at Cruise Automation. That's the, the company that GM bought in San Francisco that's working on their automated driving software. Um, you know, and, you know, I, I wouldn't be surprised if part of the reason why both of them opted to leave Uber was kind of the what looks like probably a lackadaisical attitude towards data security. Um, well, and if, if we if we don't address this, you know, all this other stuff is going to be completely irrelevant. Yeah, I mean, it's it for for me, if I were inside that kind of organization, it would just feel radioactive. Just like this stuff is not I mean, it's it's hard, but it's it's not hard in that sense to realize you've got to pay attention to this. Like this just seems like they just they didn't care. And it's not the first data breach they've had. It, you know, they had the God mode thing uh -huh. um, a couple of years ago. Like they are classically terrible with data security. And they're, they're like, that's one of the running commentaries about them is like, they're, they're just, you know, it's another sort of visionary company that's poorly managed. And um, it, it's, it's not going to end well for them if they can't just make sweeping changes and get this stuff under control. I, I mean, I, I, I can't imagine why, you know, your your new CEO comes in and, and um, doesn't go through that stuff with a fine tooth comb. So I'm sort of holding the new management and, and new leadership of Uber accountable for this in, in a way, because, you know, for it to come out now and just the excuse to be like, well, we didn't know. Um I, I don't know, man. You took over a thing that and, and a, a a thing with a long history of this kind of nonsense that should have been one of the first things you looked at. Um, and for that payment to have been made, I, I mean, that's that's just crazy. <laughs> I can't imagine. I can't imagine making a decision like that and in, in a professional capacity. It just it it just smells wrong. And you just all you have to do is just look at the legality of it. You could just Google whether that's legal or not and have an answer. You don't even need to call your company counsel. <laughs> you can just know that that's going to expose you to so much liability. Um, and it, it it's like another nail in the coffin for this crazy overvalued company that has, has fostered change. Yes, but just can't seem to actually operate as a business, like a, a group of grownups. Yeah. <laughs> I just don't, I don't get it. Yeah. I mean, you know, just, just imagine if, you know, five years from now, um, you know, there's fleets of automated vehicles, ride hailing vehicles on the road, and somebody figures out a way into the system and sends a command to a million vehicles to turn left now. You know, right. <laughs> I mean, imagine what would happen in cities, you know, if all of a sudden a million vehicles turned left wherever they happen to be. You know, it's, it's an unlikely scenario, but it's not impossible. And, you know, we need to make sure that it, you know, that 
even if somebody finds a way in that, you know, the, there are systems in place to recognize that something like that is happening and ignore that, you know, you, you've got to, you've got to make the systems as secure as you can and as resilient as you can, because you know, you've got to recognize the fact that a, a complex system can never, you can never guarantee absolute security in a complex system. And so you make it as secure as possible, you know, but you, you've also got to make it resilient so that if something, if and when something does happen, that the, the consequences are minimized. Yeah. And, I mean, and minimizing the consequences does not mean minimizing the, the PR consequences. It means minimizing the real consequences to the people riding in these vehicles. Yeah, every time there's a problem with Uber, it seems like their PR is damage control and sort of obfuscation versus, uh, you know, contrition or actually like, hey, here's here's what we're doing to, to actually solve this. And so for me, the question that comes out of this is like how much of that 70 billion dollar valuation is going to get dinged by, you know, hundreds of millions of dollars worth of, of fines and, and settlements and uh what is well, it? actually, yeah, I think I think that seventy billion dollar valuation is largely gone now, uh, or a big chunk of that is gone now because I don't know if you've been following the the news. Uh, like SoftBank, the Japanese investment company, is has been looking trying to make a big investment into Uber for a while now, and they've been trying they've been working out the details. You know, part of it is they you know in order in exchange for making this investment, they they want to minimize Kalanick's future involvement in the company. Uh, for obvious reasons, and <laughs> yeah, so I mean, there, there's two components to the investment. You know, because uh, uh, they the test, uh, their, um, Uber is obviously not a public company, but there's a lot of shareholders right now because you know a lot of employees have gotten stock options, things like that. So what um, the the way it's been reported so far is that uh, SoftBank will buy a billion dollars of new shares. And also make a tender offer for up to ten billion dollars of existing shares, um, but out of the price for those shares is going to be at a valuation between forty and fifty billion dollars, not seventy billion. So I mean that's like you know a third, almost a third off of you know their most recent uh, valuation based on their previous funding rounds. Yeah, well, so they've saved themselves some money. Yeah, well, you know, <laughs> SoftBank has, but I mean, yeah. that that's just yeah, I mean that's an indication of how much um, the value of that particular company has declined over the past year, um, you know, as a result of all of these scandals. Yeah. And so that's, that's what happens when you run your company as some sort of like bro culture frat house. Yeah. Um, and I, I haven't seen any real uh, f fruits of the, the labor of, of, you know, Dara Karashwahi. I probably met, murdered his name. Um Shahi. Kasra Shahi. Yeah, there we go. Um, or, or uh, you know, even like where, where's where is the real sort of plan to get out of this? And, and like, I just don't I don't see that happening. They they're already under scrutiny from a bunch of other uh, states, attorneys, generals. And uh, I don't know. Well, I think I think it's, a big part, like I think name. a big part of that plan or an important first step in that plan is um minimizing uh Kalanick, you know, and basically um you know eliminating a lot of the super voting rights that he had uh with his shares. Um so I think that will help. You know, and then from from what we're hearing, you know, there's a lot of you know ongoing cultural changes within the company, 
Yeah, but that's that's going to take time. That's not something that turns around overnight. Uh, you know, as we've seen with other companies, you know, it's it's hard to change culture, uh, especially when you've got you know something that's as ingrained as it was. You know, with with the the employees that you had there. You know, um, I think it's going to take a lot of turnover before you can really make those kinds of changes. Because I think a lot of the a lot of the people that were there that were misbehaving in this way, um, you know, are probably not going to be inclined to change their their behavioral patterns. Yeah. And so really kind of what that means is that in the meantime, other companies are going to either you know improve or pop up and they're going to have their lunch eaten. Yeah. So and, I, you know, it wouldn't surprise me if Uber is one of the ones that has their lunch eaten. Good luck to Uber. Yeah. <laughs> All right. Uh, I think that's, that's, that's about all. The, well, we, we, the, did, uh, we did have one Twitter question that actually came in a few days ago or, or last week. And, uh, and you, you can address it since uh, you're the only one of us that has driven the Dodge Challenger GT. Um, let's see. Uh, first of all, uh, from uh, Sam, uh, Dodge, and not me, by the way, uh, 2018 Dodge <laughs> Challenger GT, yes or no? And if yes, pitch black or white knuckle? Uh, yes. White knuckle. All right. There you go. Oh, wait, wait a minute, though. Uh, they all probably have black interiors, don't they? Because like white with tan or gray. That's that's pretty good. Yeah. You know what? It's buy what you want, but I like it in white. OK. <laughs> so there. Uh, that, that's a good car. There's there's the verdict from Dan. White uh, Challenger GT. It's a go. Yeah. To so make your own personal vanishing point. <laughs> all right. Uh, let's, let's, we're, we're going to take off now for the right. holiday. So, go, uh, thanks for, go, yeah, if, if you, if you haven't already uh, cooked your turkey, uh, you know, enjoy it, uh, however you choose to prepare it and, um, and, you know, stay away from the black Friday sales. You know, there's, it's, it's never a good deal. Yeah. Listen to back episodes of the podcast instead. Absolutely. And, and email all your <laughs> friends and call all your friends and tell them to listen to. Yes, absolutely. All right. Hey, thanks for listening. We'll catch everybody next time. All right. Bye. Support for this podcast and the following message come from Corient. Corient provides wealth management services centered around you. They focus on exceeding your expectations and simplifying your life. Corient has been helping high achievers just like you enjoy their lives more fully, preserve their wealth, and provide for the people, causes, and communities they care about. As one of the largest integrated fee-only registered investment advisors in the U.S., Corient has deeply experienced teams in 23 strategic locations. Corient has extensive knowledge spanning the full spectrum of planning, investing, lending, and money management disciplines. Leverage Corient's exclusive network of experts to craft custom solutions designed to help you reach your financial goals, no matter how complex they may be. Real wealth requires real solutions. For more information, information, connect with a wealth advisor today at Corient.com. That's C-O-R-I-E-N-T.com. Corient.com. You know how to book flights and hotels. All you're missing is a tool to plan the travel experiences you'll have once you arrive. That's why you need Viator. Book guided tours, activities, excursions, and more in one place to make your trip truly unforgettable. Viator has over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from. 
everything from simple tours to extreme adventures and all the niche, interesting stuff in between. So you can plan something that everyone you're traveling with will enjoy. Real Traveler Reviews give the inside scoop from people who've already been on the experiences you're considering. So you can plan with confidence. Free cancellation helps you plan for the unexpected. And 24-7 customer support means you can travel worry-free. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator.